you don't know this, we're just coming through the this letter to the Colossians together right now. And this is the place that we've landed. God and His sovereignty has landed us here this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave us, Lord, without understanding, without knowledge, God, but you gave us your word. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, that you would open our eyes to the truth that's found there, to the glories of Christ. And God, I pray that you would share, that you would share your burden with us. God, I pray that you would share your burden with us. God, I pray that we might feel what you feel, Lord. Loving the things that you love, hating the things that you hate. God, I pray that you would help us this morning. Lord, let the weight of the mission that you've called us to, God, the ministry that you've called us to, let it sit on us heavy, Lord, this morning. But I pray, God, you fill us with faith that as you lay burdens on us, God, you pick them up and you carry them with us. God, convict us where we need to be convicted. Encourage our souls where we need to be encouraged. God, I pray that you'd help us this morning in your word. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so we're at Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. Uh, the context is immediately around that, uh, that passage that we just read. Is a paragraph in verses 24 through 29. It's kind of speaking about a description of Paul's ministry. And so we're kind of we're on the last two verses of that paragraph. It's a description of Paul's ministry. So let's just kind of talk about context for a moment. You got this church, the church at Colossae, Colossian church, planted by Epaphras, being attacked by false teachers. That's what this letter is all about. It's a church that was started by Epaphras, not by Paul. And this man, Epaphras, he, he, he wants to defend the Colossian church against false teaching the seeping in to destroy the church. One of his weapons, one of his weapons to defend the church that he loves so much is to make it clear that the gospel that he preached and the gospel that is the foundation of the Colossian church has apostolic authority. It is from and affirmed by the apostles. It's that gospel on which they stand. Let no false teachers move you away from it. And so one of this man's, Epaphras, one of his weapons to fight against false teachers is the, the, the authority of the apostle Paul that the gospel that he preached is indeed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want you to think about that if you look at verse Verse uh, 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Now hear it. You've got the gospel there in verse 23. What gospel? That you heard. So Paul says the one that that man preached to you, that gospel that Epaphras preached to you, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul says the gospel that came to you is the same gospel of which I'm a minister. And that's why when we get to verse 24 through 29, he lays out a description of his ministry, that he is an apostle. He affirms that gospel that built their church. So I want you to think about this, this defense of the gospel coming from the leader Epaphras of the church at Colossus. Think, think, about, think about the defense of this church of him traveling land and sea to go get this letter from the Apostle Paul that he would send this letter back to affirm his gospel. Not only to affirm his gospel, but dismantle the false teachers that are there. He's willing to travel land and sea to make this happen from Colossus all the way to a Roman jail where Paul is. And so we, I, I think it's a good picture of what leadership in a local church ought to do. Now we can't, leaders in a local church can't physically go to the apostles to affirm the truth and affirm the gospel. But we have the apostles' writings written down for us. We call it the New Testament. And church leaders ought to be willing to travel land and sea to dive into God's word. To present it before the people of God that they might not be led astray by false teachers. And here we see Epaphras doing this. And so we have a gospel with apostolic authority. And then we have Paul's ministry described for us in this paragraph, verse 24 through 29. And then right at the end of that paragraph is the passage that we're in today. So, this passage is right in the midst of, of a description of Paul's ministry. I want to, from the very front here, I want to ask you a question. What about your ministry? I want you to think about your ministry for just a minute. Paul's ministry is described here, but how do you decide what your ministry is going to look like? How do you come to that conclusion about what your ministry will be like? And the first thing that has to happen before you ask that question is you have to be absolutely convinced that every Christian is called to ministry. That every Christian is called to be a minister of the gospel, to have a ministry. So are you convinced of that? I want to make you convinced of that very quickly. All Christians are to be ministers. Think about Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. It says that God gave some to be, and in that list are pastors and teachers. God gave some to be pastors and teachers for what? To do all the ministry? No, it says God gave some to be pastors and teachers. Listen to verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. The saints are called to ministry, not just pastors and teachers, but the saints called to minister. What about what Jesus said in Matthew 28 when he's told all of his disciples to go into all the earth and make disciples, teaching them to observe the things that I've commanded. All of us bear this this way. I prayed in my prayer a moment ago that we would that we would have a burden laid on us today. And how about this burden that we are called to make disciples that we are called into ministry? In 2 Corinthians 5, he says that all those that have been reconciled to God are given a ministry of reconciliation. You have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Are you convinced of that? That you have a ministry? Are you convinced of that? I want every 
Christian in the room, every born again believer in the room, I want you to say it to yourself in your own head. I am a minister of the gospel. I have a ministry that I'm responsible for accomplishing and for going after in my life. So now, once you're convinced of that, and I hope you are from those truths in God's word, then the question is, how do you know what your ministry will be like? How do you know what you should do? How do you know? Do you know for sure what your ministry should be like? And here's what I want you to believe. I want you, I want every person in the room, every member of Grace Community Church, I want you to believe in the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Not only to tell you the Gospel, but the sufficiency of the Scriptures to guide you in ministry and how you should serve Jesus Christ while you're on this earth. I want you to believe in the sufficiency of Scriptures to do that. The Bible does not leave us in a fog about who Jesus is and about what the Gospel is. And the Bible also does not leave us in a fog about what ministry you should be about. Christians today, I see it often. They get involved in this ministry and that ministry and that ministry over there and all these different types of ministry. And yet so often miss the clear ministry that God calls every Christian to in His Word. And that's a mistake. I know you believe that the Bible sufficiently tells you about salvation. I know you believe that. That there's enough in the Bible that you... Everything that you need to know so that you can be saved is found in the Bible. But do you also believe that everything that you need to know is in the Bible about how you ought to do ministry upon this earth? How you ought to serve Jesus Christ? In other words, let me say it like this. I know you believe 2 Timothy 3.15, but do you believe 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17? You see, 3.15, it says, From childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures... Which are, which are able to make you wise for salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the scriptures are sufficient to tell you how to be saved. But do you believe verse 16 and 17? All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work connected to the Scriptures. Are you convinced that not only is the Scripture sufficient to show you the Gospel, but sufficient to tell you what your ministry and what your work upon this earth ought to be? The details of how we do ministry, it matters to God. It really does. We are, we are not mavericks doing our own thing, coming up, being creative, and coming up with what we want to do. That's not who we are. We are men and women under authority, under the authority of Jesus Christ, under the authority of His Word, and He tells us what we ought to do and how we ought to do it. And I want you to be convinced of that. So, as we dig in to these two verses, Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, here's something I want you to see. Paul's ministry that's being described in these two verses, it informs every believer's ministry in this room. Paul's ministry from these two verses informs your ministry if you are in Christ Jesus. Now I'm assuming that everybody here understands the differences between Paul's ministry and our ministry. Okay, he's, a, he's an apostle. You are not. There's a lot of things about that that makes, makes it different. There are differences between your ministry and the Apostle Paul's 
ministry. But I want to highlight that in verses 28 and 29, there are similarities and there are things to be imitated that we see in these two verses today. And let me just give you a few uh, proofs of that, okay? Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul says this, the Apostle Paul says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. You see that? Twice when he was writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, imitate me. The Apostle Paul, as I imitate Christ, so you imitate me. You even see the same thing in the verses, excuse me, in the letter that we're in right now. Think about this. Look at chapter 1, verse 28 with me one more time. Or, or not, we're going to look at it many more times, but look at it right here. Him we proclaim, listen to this, listen to the way this is phrased. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. He's speaking about his ministry. Now flip over to chapter 3. When he turns the corner and he speaks to everybody, he lays the charge on us all. Listen to the exact same phrase. Chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, that's warning, teaching and warning one another in all wisdom. So you have this exact same phrase. Paul speaks it about his own ministry. And when he turns the corner of chapter 3 and speaks to them of what they're called to do, he lays that exact same phrase on them. So I want you to see this. I want to highlight this, that when we look at Paul's ministry in verse 28 29 of chapter 1 of Colossians, it informs and speaks to our ministry. So as we look at it, we're about to move into it right now. I want you to see Paul's ministry. And I also want you to examine your own. I want you to examine your own. Be instructed, be challenged, be motivated. Look at verse 28 and 29. Let me read this one more time and I want to show you. I want to show you four headings. Four headings out of these two verses, okay? Four headings. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone... And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let me quickly explain those four headings that are on your study guide that you have right there. Heading number one is the objective of the ministry. This, this, the objective of the ministry. Look at about in the middle of verse 28. Here's the objective. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Think about that objective. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the aim. That's the goal. That's the objective. This, this gives us direction on where we're going when we think about ministry before God. Heading number two. The effort. The effort of ministry. Keep going there into verse 29. Here's the effort. For this I toil. Struggling. For this I toil. Struggling. This is the effort. This is how hard that we push into fulfilling this objective of presenting everyone mature in Christ. Number three. The power source of the ministry. The power source. Keep going in verse 29. With all His energy that He powerfully works within me. With all His energy that He powerfully 
works within me. This is the, the power source. This is the, the fuel to fulfill the objective of presenting everyone mature in Christ. And lastly, the fourth heading is the means of the ministry or the tool. What weapon will you use? And that's right at the beginning in verse 28 when it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So you see where we're going here, right? Every verse covered, every word in those verses covered under four headings. Now let's start with that first heading, okay? The objective. The objective of ministry. Here's the objective. Listen to it. This, this is your aim. Okay? The, the, the bow of your life has the arrow of the gospel in it. And what are we? It's pulled back. What are we aimed at right here? Here it is. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let that sink in as your objective and as Paul's objective. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, for clarity's sake, let's talk about what this means. Let's talk about what this means. Now, some versions say that we might present everyone complete in Christ. Some say that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. And here it says that we might present everyone mature in Christ. What does it mean? So here's one question that might help with clarity. I hope it doesn't muddy the waters. It's this question. Are we talking about justification right here? Or are we talking about sanctification right here? In other words, when he says that we might present everyone complete in Christ, is, is, is what he has on his mind, is it, is it that we might preach that gospel and his souls might be saved and when their souls are saved, God looks on them as justified completely? Or are we talking about sanctification here? That we might pour in and see believers raised up to maturity in Christ. Are we talking about people being saved in justification or people continuing in that salvation in sanctification? What are we talking about here? And I, and I want to give a kind of a simple answer to that first. First off, we're talking about both. We're talking about both. In a sense, we're talking about both. And here's why I say that. These things slam together. They're not divided in the scriptures. They're two different things. Justification and sanctification. They are distinctly different, no doubt. But they're slammed together in God's word. That if you have one, you have the other. And so here's the idea. It doesn't matter the starting point of anybody that you come across. Is their starting point a lost person? They need the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved and come to maturity in Christ. Is their starting point a new believer? You need to help them become mature in Christ. Is their starting point a mature believer? You need to help them to more maturity in Christ. The starting point doesn't matter. In fact, notice when you read these verses, notice the word that is repeated three times. You see it? Verse 28 and 29, the word that is repeated three times is this. Warning everyone and teaching everyone so that we might present everyone Mature in Christ. Everyone. Lost. New believer. Old believer. Rich. Poor. It doesn't matter. That you have a view towards all of them. And the end goal being that they find Christ Jesus the Savior. The Lord. And they become mature in Christ. Okay. Everybody with me on that? So what's our objective? We might present everyone mature in Christ. Now on the other hand. Let me answer it a little bit different way. 
In another sense, if you read most commentators, most commentators push toward this word mature, this phrase of presenting people mature, it's a more of a lean towards sanctification is what is in mind here. And let me give you a couple reasons for that. One is just the word. Okay, so, so present everyone mature in Christ. We're talking about sanctification because the word mature itself, that Greek word there is, is, is to be brought to its end. It's like the full ripening of the fruit. That's the idea behind that Greek word translated mature. But you also know that from the context in Colossians. Think about this. The verses that we're in today, Paul uses this word. I struggle. I struggle. And my struggle was to present everyone mature in Christ. Well, then jump to chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle. Same word. <clears throat> he says, in general, I struggle that I might present them mature in Christ. And he turns to Colossians and says, my struggle is for you, Colossian church. And listen to what he says. I have for you and for those that lay to see and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And you could go on. The idea there sounds like sanctification. Then my struggle is that you become mature in Christ. And one more place, Colossians chapter four. <clears throat> this verse also gives us the same word translated mature. And you see that it seems to be in the context of sanctification. Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, Jesus, greets you, <clears throat> always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. You hear the, the, the sanctification in that verse, that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So what's the objective? What's our objective? Everybody here... Called to the ministry of the gospel. Everybody here called to that. And what is Paul's objective? Therefore, what is your objective? That you might present everyone <clears throat> mature, <clears throat> excuse me, mature in Christ. So is that your objective? Ask yourself that question. Do you have that objective that rides, it, it rides over your head day in and day out that this is what you're going after? I want to just give a few more proofs that this was Paul's objective. I want you to think about this. So we see towards the Colossian church, we know from chapter 2 verse 1 that he didn't even know this church. He had never even met this church. And yet he longed for their maturity. He longed for them to be brought to maturity in Christ. We also see this in Paul's life towards people that he knew really well, towards Timothy. Paul towards Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, be strong in that grace. And listen, Timothy, the things that you've heard from me, you, you give these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see Paul's heart in that? This is his objective, to present men mature in Christ. You see this on his missionary journeys. I challenge you to go back and read through his three missionary journeys. If you read Acts 14, verse 21 and 23, in that first missionary journey in the, <clears throat> in the Galatian region, what we find out is that he preached the gospel, made many disciples, went back through those cities, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthening the souls of the disciples in that Galatian region where he had planted churches and preached the gospel. 
And then when he goes on that second missionary journey in Acts 15, at the end of Acts 15 and the beginning of Acts 16, he says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to those places that we've already been. Let's go back to those places. And he says they went there to strengthen the souls of the saints, to strengthen the churches there that they had already been to. But he wanted to bring these believers to maturity. Then you get to Acts 18. In Acts 18, they come back home and they're about to go out on that third missionary journey. But guess where they go first? Back to that same Galatian region. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples. There was something in Paul that when he thought about his ministry, I want to present every man mature in Christ. I want to strengthen the souls of the saints. I want to see the lost people brought to Jesus Christ and then brought up into maturity. This is the aim of all his New Testament writings, right? Why is he writing to the Roman Christians? Why is he writing to the Galatians? Why is he writing to the Philippians? Why is he doing this? Because he has this aim in mind. He has this goal to present everyone mature in Christ. In fact, I would go as far to say that this objective was so important to him. Is it important to you? This objective was so important to him that the way he viewed people falling away from the faith or not moving towards maturity, is that his own labor was in vain. Now nobody talks like that anymore. Nobody talks like that anymore. But he said that in Philippians 2.16, for example. He says, oh, that you might hold fast to the word of life. That you might hold fast to it. So that in the day of Christ, I may not be ashamed that I have run in vain or labored in vain. Oh, if you fall away, then I've labored in vain. There was an importance to this objective in Paul's ministry. So this is Paul's objective. So let's turn the corner. What about you, brother and sister in Christ? Is your objective to present everyone mature in Christ? Do you labor to this end? If this is your objective, or maybe you're even thinking about it right now, you're kind of Beginning to realign. You're getting realigned about what you're going to do with your life. As you think about that objective, what about towards the lost people? What about towards the lost world? Does it show that this is your objective? Are you living in light of eternity? That every soul that you meet is an eternal soul that will either go to heaven forever or go to hell forever? Are you living in light of eternity that lost people need to hear of the crucified one and be saved? What about towards, towards the church of Jesus Christ? What about towards the church, your brothers and sisters? Does it show that this is your objective to present everyone mature in Christ? Think about that Colossians 3.16 that I referenced a moment ago. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, brothers and sisters. Let it dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Is that your heart? Are you living in light of... This war between two kingdoms. There's a war right now going on before your eyes. It's going on between two kingdoms over the souls of men. The kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of His beloved Son. Are you living in light of that? And that your brothers and sisters are being tempted to be dragged away. Do you encourage them? Do you build them up? Do you take the gospel? Do you remind them of the promises? Or what about another category here? Is your objective to present everyone mature in Christ? And can you see that in your intentional discipleship relationships? I want to encourage you with that. Your intentional 
Discipleship relationship. And what I'm thinking about is like Jesus, right? Like Jesus had that ministry to the multitudes. He's preaching the gospel to whoever comes by, standing in a boat, preaching to the multitudes on the shoreline. But he also has those that he pulls in a little tighter. He also has those that he pulls in a little bit tighter. And he's intentionally building into them with their life, with his life and with the word of God. He's building into them. What about that? When you think about your objective of your ministry and your life being to, to present everyone mature in Christ. How does that show itself in your intentional discipleship relationships? And as I ask all those questions, I want to encourage you to think about it. What's stopping you in that? If something stops you in that, what is stopping you? Do you have other objectives that are slipping in and getting in the way? What's stopping you from giving your life to this objective to present everyone mature in Christ? Let's go to that second heading. The effort. The effort of the ministry. And what I mean by this is, is how much do you need to put into this ministry? How much do you need to put into this Objective. How zealously do you pursue this objective? It's been said that it doesn't take much of a man to be a minister, but it takes all of them. And I believe Paul thought the same thing. He says right here in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling. For this I toil, struggling. This word right here translated toil is to labor to exhaustion. Once you think about that, you've got that objective in mind, present everyone mature in Christ, winning the loss, building up disciples, you're thinking about that, and now labor in it to exhaustion. Paul says, I labor in this to exhaustion. Now just, let me prick on this a little bit. In our culture, the culture we live in, this, we live in kind of a pansy culture, right? And in this culture, exhaustion is always seen as a bad thing to avoid at all costs. Take the easy road, take the smooth path, do nothing hard. If it's hard, run away from it like the plague. That's the culture that you live in. How can I get something done without sweating? How can I get it done without calluses on my hands? That's the mindset of the culture that you live in. But think about this. Being, being absolutely exalt, exhausted at the end of the championship football game is a virtue for that athlete. Right? I mean, what would you think of him if he steps off the field and he hasn't, sweat, he's, he hasn't been sweating, he's not dirty, he's not even breathing hard. What would you think about that football player stepping off the field? You see, exhaustion can be a virtue in a sense. Think about it like this. Being exhaust, exhausted at the end of the race reveals something good about the runner. It shows you that he's giving it his all. He's leaving it all on the field. But what about a soldier? Imagine a soldier coming off the battlefield. He's not sweating. He's not breathing hard. He has no marks of exertion or exhaustion on him. You would be rightly ashamed of that soldier who's not moving with zeal, who's not toiling and laboring to exhaustion. And even so it is with the Christian. We are called by God to spend our lives in exhausting labors for His glory. Amen? Exhausting labors for His glory. That's the word toil right there. Look at the next word. Struggling. 
struggling. It's the Greek word agonizoma, which is where we get the English word agonize. Imagine that, agonizing in the ministry, struggling in the ministry of the saints. It's an athlete's word. It's contending in the Olympic Games. It's that kind of mindset. It's agonizing and contending and fighting. It's strenuous zeal being put forth that I might win the prize. It's struggling. It's the same word over in first, or it's a similar idea as 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. You remember that? All those runners who run in a race, they all run, but one gets the prize. So what do we do? Therefore, run. Run in such a way that you might get the prize. And those who labor for these things, they become self-controlled in all things. They, they, don't, they don't just beat the air when they fight. They don't just run aimlessly. And the idea of that verse is towards the ministry of the saints. I'm calling us to this. Run with zeal. Struggle and fight and toil. Labor and sweat and get your hands dirty for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's the idea here. In pushing forward, think about this, in pushing forward into this objective, presenting everyone mature in Christ. As you push forward into that, give maximum effort. No, push through pain. Leave it all on the field. Lay down your life. There were no According to these words in verse 29, there were no half-hearted efforts coming out of Paul towards the ministry. And I want us to be inspired by that. I want us to be inspired by that, that Paul poured himself absolutely out for that. Philippians 2.16, he even says it towards them. He said, I have poured myself out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Poured myself out like a drink offering. So if your ministry... Everybody here has a ministry. If your ministry is biblical, it means it probably won't be a cakewalk. It won't be that way. 2 Corinthians 12, 15 says, I'll very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Although the more I love you, the less I'm loved. But Galatians 4, 19, he says, I labor in birth pains again until Christ be formed in you. He compares it to laboring in birth pains. His labors in this objective to present everyone mature in Christ. Laboring for the mission is not sipping lattes, right? It's not compared to skipping through a meadow. It's a hard-working farmer. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6. It's a hard-working farmer. Tilling up the ground. Planting the seed. Cultivating the land. Fighting off every creature that tries to ruin the harvest. Enduring every storm that tries to ruin the harvest. It's the hard-working farmer going after his objective. Running the race. Fighting like a soldier. So what about you? Could your ministry, your ministry to present everyone mature in Christ, could it be described as toil? Laboring to exhaustion, struggling and striving like a soldier. Could it be described as leaving it all on the field like a champion? Or is making disciples and presenting everyone mature in Christ, is that just a side thing that we do? Is that just when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when it's easy? Or do we strive and push forward into that? I want you to think about a worldly man. A worldly man is absolutely convinced 
that his objective will make him happy. A worldly man is absolutely convinced that if he gets his objective of wealth and prosperity, that if he gets that, he will be ultimately happy. So you know what he does? He studies and he strives and he makes sacrifice to get his prosperity and to get his wealth. And then you turn that toward us and we say that our service to Christ, that our service to the Lord Jesus Christ, that our service in His ministry is what brings us ultimate joy. And yet oftentimes we don't give half the effort of the worldly man in his pursuits. It's a shame. It's a shame. I think about the Mormons. They knocked on my door just yesterday when I was studying this passage of Scripture. Knocked on my door. You think about that. Those... These people that are that are empowered by demonic spirits, to, to, demonic spirits to to propagate their false doctrine, came knocking on your pastor's door to lead me astray tomorrow, yesterday. Excuse me, to lead me astray. And I say, you think about the way they labor and the way they go. Don't be outrun. They are they are they are motivated by false spirits. You are motivated by the spirit of Almighty God. Don't be outrun by them. Don't be outrun by them. What's the intensity of your effort to fulfill the objective of presenting everyone mature in Christ? Is, is something else getting that intensity? Is there another objective getting your intensity? 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let's go to that third heading. So, as you think about your aim, your goal, you think about Paul's aim, Paul's goal, you think about strenuous labor and zeal to exhaustion, think about this third heading. The power source of ministry. What fuels Paul? What fuels us to do this sort of ministry? It says it right here in verse 29. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. With all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, this is, the, this is an amazing reality of the Christian life, right? Amazing reality that, that we're working our tails off and yet it's God working. What? Think about 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says that by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more than them all. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. What? How? This amazing reality that it's us laboring with all that we have, and yet it's God's labors, God's work. Galatians 2.20, same thing, right? I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Listen to that. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live. Wait a minute, I thought you said you no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Think about this. We... we don't live as God's work within us, yet we labor with all that we have. It's an amazing reality here. I want you, I want, I want you to look at this word. With all His energy. That word energy right there, is, it's, uh, it's, it's God's working. It's 
God's efficiency. Paul says, I'm laboring and struggling with all his energy. Paul was a moped running on jet fuel. This word powerfully, look at powerfully. It's the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. It's where we get the English word dynamite from. Dynamite. When Christians labor in the ministry of presenting everyone mature in Christ, it's not normal. It's not business as usual. It's the dynamite of God's power. It's an explosive move of God's power as He moves upon Christians who go after this labor. It's powerful. Paul labored to exhaustion with the dynamite of God's power at his back. Paul labored to exhaustion with the dynamite of God's power at his back. And I just want you to think about this. It's not that Paul was just a, an extraordinary man. He wasn't just this extraordinary man. In fact, he was weak and he was fragile. By his own admission, he was weak and he was fragile. Think about these verses. 2 Corinthians eleven six. He says, I am unskilled in speaking. I say, me too. I'm unskilled in speaking. Look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 10. His opponents would say stuff like this about him. Paul's letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. He admits himself in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 that when he went to the Corinthians, he, said, he didn't say, I came to you like a bold warrior. He said, I came to you with fear and weakness and in much trembling. So what I want you to see is it's not that Paul was this extraordinary man that got it done. That's not the point. He labored in a certain kind of way. What way? He labored with all his energy, which he so powerfully works within me. It's explosive. It's the power of God. I want you to think about at the end of his life. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The end of Paul's life. He says, I finished the race. I fought the good fight. I've labored to the end. And he gets up a little later in that letter and he says, everybody's forsaken me. All of them have forsaken me. But the Lord has not forsaken me. He says, listen, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that the message might be preached fully through me and all the Gentiles might hear. The testimony of Paul is that as he labored, though everybody else left him, Christ stood with him and strengthened him for the ministry. That's his testimony. So what about you? Will you labor to exhaustion in the objective of presenting everyone mature in Christ with the dynamite of God's power at your back? You have access to it. If you're in Christ Jesus, listen to me. Look me in the eye. You have, you have this power, the same access that Paul had to it. You have to it. Matthew 20, verse 18, 19, 20. He says, make disciples. And he says, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. Do you believe it or not? In John 7, 38, 39, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's speaking about the spirit of God. Ephesians 1, Paul prayed this, that we might understand the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then he describes as the same power that rose Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power, you, you have access to it. 
If you're in Christ Jesus. In the same way Paul did. So you say, I don't feel like that. I feel weak. I feel like I'm not strong enough to do this. I feel like I'm not smart enough. I feel like I'm not zealous enough. I feel like I just feel too weak for this. If you say that, good. You are the the best candidate to partake of God's power because He says that His power is made perfect in weakness. You know, everybody, that's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Most people know the first half of that verse. His power is made perfect in weakness. But most people don't know the second half. The second half says, Therefore, I boast in my weaknesses and my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest on me. So what do you do when you feel weak? What do you do? Do you retreat from the mission? I feel weak, so I retreat from the mission. Or when you feel weak, do you do what Paul said? Do you boast in it so that the power of Christ might rest on you in that moment? You have access to this same power. So, before I move to that other heading, let me ask a question I think would be helpful. So we know how to labor and strive. We know how to do it to exhaustion. But how do you labor and strive in such a way that you're pulling from the resources of God's power to do it? In other words, how do you how do you do something? You're doing it, but you do it in the ability that God supplies. Like it says in 1 Peter 4, 11. How do, you, how do you do that? And let me give a simple answer and then add a little bit of practical help to it. The simple answer is this. It's faith. It's faith in God. Yanking down the resources of God's power to do His work. It's faith in God. Let me prove that. Galatians 2.20 again. Listen to Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, says Paul. I no longer live. The life that I now live. Wait a minute. Paul, you said you no longer live. So how, then you said you live. So Paul, how do I live in such a way that it's as if I'm not living it, but God is living it? How do I do that? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Faith yanks down the resources of God's power to do His work in His ministry. But let me be more practical about that. Faith in God. I want everybody to go after this. Faith in God that is expressed through strenuous labor for God. You say, what do you mean by that? Here's what I'm saying, okay? When when the people of Israel were there, before they crossed that Red Sea, God did not part the Red Sea and then say, okay, now y'all get up and go. You go read that passage, God looks at those people and He says, Moses, you tell them, go forward. And as they went, as they stepped forward, God began to part the Red Sea. Or when the people were camped out before the Jordan River, God didn't stop the Jordan River and it's okay, now y'all get up and go cross it. He said, move forward, march toward that river. Oh, but, but God, we don't know how to stop the river. Why are we walking this way? God, there's a big river there. We can't get across that. How do we do that, God? He says, move forward. And when the feet of the priest touch the waters on the bank of the water, then I'll stop that river in that moment, but not a moment sooner. So move forward. Think about Paul and Barnabas. What did they know before they headed out on that trip to go preach the gospel, make disciples in that Galatian region? They just have to move in faith, trusting the living God. He's called me to this and He's going to move and He's going to act for the glory of His name. And what about you? Faith 
that pulls down the resources of God's power in some ways is expressed by you moving forward into this ministry of, of seeing all people come to maturity in Christ. Move forward into and trust God to use you. Let me add another little, little piece of that. Faith expressed by prayer, right? We go to God and we cry out to Him. I want to I challenge you to do this. I challenge you to look up every place you can find in the New Testament where Paul asks for, gives a personal prayer request. So he talks a lot about praying. I pray for this. I pray for this. Y'all pray for this. But when he turns the corner and says, and pray for me. And pray for me. And you go look and see if you can find a pattern of what he asked for. And just to tell you from the front end, he says stuff like this. Pray for me that a door might be open for your word. That I might speak it clearly as I ought to speak. Pray for me that the word of God might move speedily and prevail out of my mouth. Pray for me in that. And so in the same way, how do we labor in this ministry in a way that God is the one doing the labor? We cry out to the living God. God, do it. God, open the door. God, give me the boldness. God, give me the clarity. God, let it land on them. When I imperfectly speak your gospel, when I imperfectly teach your word, let it land in such a way that the maturity of the saints is produced. That souls are saved and believers grow. Pray for that. Let's go to that next heading. So, this, so here's a, let me give you a little summary. So our aim, uh, our objective, present everyone mature in Christ. Our effort, zeal, passion, everything you've got. Our power source, God Almighty, moving upon us as we work for His glory. And what about the means of ministry? The means of ministry. So, so here's, the, here's the tool. Here's the weapon in your hand. To fulfill the objective that you want to fulfill. This is the tool, the weapon in Paul's hand as he describes his ministry to see Christians mature in Christ. So let this, let this phrase instruct you, instruct you on how to make disciples. Let it instruct you on how to present everyone mature in Christ. Listen to it. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. With all wisdom. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There's a few things that we can take from this phrase, okay? And I want you to go with me just taking a few things from this phrase to see Paul's ministry and to instruct us in ours. One thing is this. To engage in this God-given ministry that, that, that God has blessed you with, okay? You must open your mouth. You must open your mouth. Look at those words. You see proclaim. You see warning. You see teaching. See, those are words in which you must open your mouth and proclaim. You must open your mouth and something has to come out. It's called proclamation and warning and teaching. You have to open your mouth to fulfill this ministry. So think about it like this. Open your mouth for the lost world. Grace Community Church, open your mouth for the lost world. How will they believe in Him in whom they've not heard? Open your mouth for the church. The church needs encouragement, rebuke, correction, challenge, understanding, reminders of promises, reminders of commands, reminders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You have to open your mouth for this. 
Open your mouth for those intentional discipleship relationships. Like Christ. Like Christ is ministering to the multitudes. And yet those few, those 12 that he pulled in a little tighter. And you're going after. You say, I want to do that. I want to intentionally. I want to make disciples. I want to go after that. So, so, so you got to open your mouth for that. John 17, 14 describes how Jesus dealt with the 12. Listen, he says something very simple. I have given them your word. You have to open your mouth. I have given them your word. And so when you open your mouth. For this ministry, what is supposed to come out? Anybody know? It says, Him. Him. You love Him? You think He's glorious? It says, open your mouth and let what flows out be Him. And the context here is clear. It's Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus Christ our Lord. We proclaim Him. Jesus is the one that we Proclaim the proclamation of Jesus delivers sinners from hell, takes immature believers and makes them mature and takes mature believers and makes them more mature. The proclamation of Jesus does all of that. Therefore, it doesn't matter what point someone is coming from. Open your Bible, open your mouth and proclaim him. Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the scripture it's what's supposed to be coming out of our mouth, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God brings is profitable for teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word. So obviously it's the scriptures. But listen to me. If you don't heed this warning that Jesus is the supreme subject of the scriptures. If you don't heed that warning, you'll be like those boys in John 5, right? They search the scriptures every day, but they miss Jesus. They miss the main point. And Jesus says, the word doesn't even abide in you. The word does not even abide in you. Him we proclaim. When you open your mouth, what comes out? Him we proclaim. Now, now does that mean we never touch other subjects? You know, uh, uh, helping a brother or sister come to maturity by talking to them about marriage or about their parenting or about their disciplines in the word of God or disciplines in prayer. Do we never do that? Well, of course we do those things. But listen, you need to know this. Jesus is supreme. He's the supreme subject of the scriptures. He's the thread in which all the fabric, the, the fabrics of the Bible, this thread runs through all of them. It's Jesus Christ, the supreme one in all, the, in all that you teach, in all that you explain, in all that you preach. I want you to allow uh, a, a, a dead preacher to teach you this lesson. Okay. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And I want you to allow Charles Spurgeon. A dead preacher. With a respected pastor. With a respected ministry. That bore a whole lot of fruit. That we can learn a lot from. And I just want you to learn. This lesson. From Charles Spurgeon. You know at the beginning of his ministry. Just think about this for a minute. This lesson of Jesus being the supreme subject. Of all that we proclaim in God's word. March 25th, 1861, Spurgeon, he was 26 years old, and he took up for the first time, he, he went to the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. This, this church that would go on to have a massive impact in his day. And so he goes, this church, first, first sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle here, and how would he begin his ministry in that place? How would he do it? 
What would he preach in his first sermon that he preaches is on Acts 5, verse 42. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. And this is what he preaches. And these are some of the words from that first sermon. Listen to what he says. I would propose that the subject of the ministry in this house as long as this platform shall stand, as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I'm asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the sum and the substance of the gospel, who is, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. That's how it began. And he went on throughout his life and he said throughout his ministry, he said things like this. Preach orthodoxy or any form of doxy. If you have left out Christ, there is no manna from heaven. If you've left out Christ, there's no water from the rock, no refuge from the storm, no healing for the sick, no life for the dead. If you no healing for this, excuse me. If you leave out Christ, you have left the sun out of the day, the moon out of the night. You have left the waters out of the sea, the floods out of the river. You have left the harvest out of the year, the soul out of the body. You've left the joy out of heaven, yet you have robbed all of its all. There is no gospel worth thinking of, much less proclaiming if Jesus be forgotten. And he keeps saying, he says this, no Christ in your sermon, sir. Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. He goes on. I know one who said, this is in another sermon. I know one who said, I was always on one stream and he would come and hear me no more. But if I preach a sermon without Christ in it, he would come. Ah, oh, he will never come. He goes on to say, Christless preachers, Christless Sunday school teachers, Christless Class leaders, Christless track distributors. What are all these doing? All their labors in vain. If you leave Jesus out, you are simply beating the air or going to war without any weapon of which you can smite the foe. And I want you to think as he came to the end of his ministry. You know, he, he, once, he once said as a younger man, he said something about the last sermon that he would preach. He said this. He said, if I only had one more sermon to preach before I die, it would be about my Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when we get to the end of our ministry, one of our regrets will be that we did not preach more of him. I'm sure no minister will ever repent of having preached him too much. And he gets to the end of his ministry. And it's June 7th, 1891. And Spurgeon preaches his last sermon in his ministry. Nobody knew. He didn't know it was the last one. The church didn't know it was the last one. But here's his last sermon. And he says this. It is heaven to serve Jesus. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choices of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish, and superabundant in love, you always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be His name. 
I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below. If so, it pleased him. His service is life and peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter on at it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even this day. Amen. So, this effective ministry that we, we admire, this fruitful ministry that we admire, I want you to be taught by Him that the truth that Paul has already taught us, it's Him we proclaim. We open our Bibles before all people, lost people, saved people, people that we're intentionally discipling. We open our Bibles before them and we open our mouths and we proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as the subject of all subjects from His Word and see men brought to maturity in Jesus. Now let me. Let's look at these four words. There's four words in verse 28. That instruct us on how to present everyone mature in Christ. So you got your Bible. Open. Your mouth's open. And here's the four words. You see them in 28. Proclaim. Second word. Warning. Third word. Teaching. Fourth word. Wisdom. And we can get some instruction on this. On how to go after our objective and how Paul went after his objective. This word proclaim is to announce, is to declare it to the world, is to herald it as if a herald before a king. Proclaim. It's that we don't just give lectures, but we proclaim Christ. We proclaim his word. There's a sense of authority that lies in this word. We are not just about stirring up open-ended discussions about things that we're not sure about. We're not just stirring up open-ended discussions that we might consider the truth. We have truth from God that we are to with authority. Not our authority, but the authority of God's Word. Proclaim it as true. Imagine how that plays out to the world. We don't just offer options to the world. We tell the world the truth about God. The truth about Christ. The truth about their souls. The truth about the judgment to come. And we call them to repent and believe in the gospel. But what about towards those, those, those discipleship relationships that you find yourself in? We don't come just to sip coffee and, and kick it a little bit. We don't do that. We come with truth from God's word that has authority and it has impact in your life. It means something. We proclaim Christ. The second two words we'll take together. The next two words. Warning and teaching. I want you to be instructed by this. These two words, warning and teaching. They go together, okay? Think about this. Simply put, warning is to expose danger and warn people about it. It's, it's, warning is to let people know about the danger or the issue that's there. Teaching is to lay out the doctrine, to lay out the sound Doctrine. Think about it like this. Colossians 1, Paul is proclaiming Christ in teaching. Colossians 2, Paul is proclaiming Christ in warning. In the teaching, he just lays out Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. In Jesus, all things were created. He is the creator of all things. In fact, they were created for him. He is before all things. In Him all things consist. All we are wicked and evil people that deserve hell. Yet He is reconciled through the, through the body of His death. He went to the cross and was crucified in our place. He's just teaching. You get to Colossians 2. He begins to warn. I'm writing these things that you might not be persuaded by those with their persuasive arguments. Don't be led astray by philosophy. Don't be led astray by these things. 
But hold fast to the head who is Christ. You see the difference in warning and teaching here. Warning involves awakening people to consequences. There's usually tears involved in this warning of your brothers and sisters or those that you are in those discipleship relationships with. There's tears. There's, there's pleading with them. There's tearing down strongholds to keep them and move them away from the truth. But teaching, that's warning, but teaching is the orderly, organized presentation of the truth. One informs the heart and causes you to repent. The other one informs the mind. Now both of these are necessary if we are going to present everyone mature in Christ. Warnings, think about it like this. Warnings are those in your life stuff. I'm in your life and I know what's going on and, and, I, and I know how you're doing. I know what's going on here and I'm able to give those warnings and that instruction and speak of the consequences and call you into that. But the teaching is laying out the foundations of sound doctrine in their life. You understand that difference? Think about it like this, a warning of me. If I'm warning a brother that I'm in this intentional discipleship relationship with, if I'm warning them about the danger of neglecting the means of grace and neglecting the Word of God, and I'm warning them, imagine that as a warning. And then imagine the teaching as, I've got nothing, to, I've got nothing personal. This is what I say to everybody. Let me talk to you about justification. Let me talk to you about the one that if you put your faith in Christ, the God of the, all the earth, the judge of all the earth, will call you justified because of your faith in Christ Jesus. Let's be teaching justification. So both of these, teaching and warning, are necessary. That last phrase says, with all wisdom. The last word, wisdom. Do this warning and teaching with all wisdom. Do it with all wisdom. Now think about this. Here's what it doesn't mean. The word wisdom, it's not what many twisters of Scripture do. Well, they use, you got to be wise. you got to have wisdom. And they use that to undercut God's commands in His Word. Beware of that. That's not what this means. It's not, well, yeah, God says do this, but you got to be wise. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, is this. Think about it like this. Him we proclaim. That's the main verb, proclaim. What do you mean? Warning and teaching with all wisdom. Your warning and your teaching is wise when it's Jesus that you proclaim. It's in wisdom when it's Jesus as the supreme subject of the scriptures. When he's the Mount Everest of all of your teaching. It's wise. That's wisdom. So if you want to be wise in your zealous pursuit of presenting every man mature in Christ, if you want to be wise in that, listen to me. Listen to me. Go to people. Open your Bible. Open your mouth. Warn them and teach them for their maturity. And let the thread that is weaved into all the fabrics be Jesus Christ the Savior. Jesus Christ the Lord. I hope you see Paul's ministry and I hope you feel instructed about your own. I want to give you a takeaway. It's a little different than we normally do. It's like homework. I'll give you a takeaway. Here's the takeaway. When you see it at the bottom of your study guide there, I want you to get along by yourself or with your spouse in a secret place. I want you to get along somewhere. Later on. Today, tomorrow, something. I want you to get along by yourself. I want you to get a, a, a paper, some paper, a pencil, 
Bible. You're alone. You're by yourself. Maybe with your spouse. Paper, pencil, Bible. I want you to think. Think deeply. I want you to read God's Word. Especially these things that we're talking. I want you to read these things. I want you to pray. Take time to read and pray and to think over these things in a secret place, undistracted, all by yourself. And here's the question. It's at the bottom of your sheet. The question that I want you to ask and answer. How can you do a better job of living out Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29? I want you to do that. How can you be more zealous and more effective in your pursuit of this in your life? Living out Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29. Let me give you four categories to think in. I got you some blank, blank space on that sheet, but it's not enough. You have to get those sheet of paper out. Four categories to think about that in. What about towards the lost? How can you do better at being more intentional at being around the lost with the idea of Him we proclaim? Warning every man, teaching every man, by presenting everyone mature in Christ. How can you do better in that aspect of your life? Number two, in public teaching. Some of you teaching Bible studies and things like that. How Can it be described? Would you be rebuked by Paul and Spurgeon? Can it be described? Your teaching is Him we proclaim. Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we might present every man mature in Christ. And if you're here and you don't do public teaching, can you pray for that in your church? Can you imagine that? Years from now, you know it happens. Years and years, generations from now, in this church that you love and our kids and our kids' kids... And their false doctrine is being taught publicly again and again. Can you pray for that in this church? Third category. I want you to pray about this. Think about this. What about towards one another? How can you do a better job at living out Colossians 1, 28, 29 towards one another? Colossians 3, 16 is a good verse to put there. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And lastly, I want you to think about this. What about an intentional discipleship relationships. How can you live out Colossians 1, 28, 29? How can you be more zealous and more effective in living that out? And I believe as we go to God and we pray to Him in that, we ask Him for help, I believe absolutely God would honor that and God would help us, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Please, Lord, help us to be doers of it and not hearers only. Lord, we ask that you would share your burden with us. And God, I believe that there are some here that you have, God, that you have shared. That there are many here, God, that you have shared your burdens with them about this. And I just pray, God, in the same way that they feel the burden of it, God, that they would feel you carrying it. In the same way they feel the labor to exhaustion, oh God, that they would also feel your energy at work within them as you powerfully work within them. Lord, make us laborers. You told us to pray for laborers. You said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So God, we pray for laborers, Lord. Raise up laborers in your kingdom. Make us laborers in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we love you. Let all our service be in love. In Jesus' name.